This podcast deals with mature themes that are intended for an adult audience. The information in this show could be triggering and cause distress for some viewers. If you feel in distress, please seek out help. Please take care in listening. This is the Relationship Review with Delcy Martin. Welcome back to the Relationship Review. Last time when we left off, we'd entered the dating world and we were driving toward the goal of a long-term relationship. Before we continue, also let me acknowledge that long-term relationships, they're not everyone's thing. Some people prefer not to commit to a single person for that long of a period. This is a totally valid relationship style, as long as it's working for both members of the relationship. When it feels like it isn't working, then a conversation to renegotiate the values of the relationship is definitely in order. So let's take a look at a different form of relationship, long distance. Long distance relationships can either stay long distance or they start long distance and then turn into permanent ones uh, that are within proximity to each other. Partners in long distance relationships often report higher quality relationships than those who are living near their partner. Researchers theorize that this is because frequently thinking about positive memories of your loved one is actually a thing that's really prominent for the most satisfied couples. You think about your partners more when they aren't around, and people in long-distance relationships are around their partners less often. People in long-distance relationships are not exposed to the day-to-day mundane versions of their partners. They get the attentive version of their partners because they're together less frequently, and they want to make the most of their quality time. There's also a lot of conflict avoidance because they don't want to ruin the little time they have together by talking about problems. This is problematic, though, because studies show that it's the mundane day-to-day interactions that are the stuff for romance building. When you're talking about your day-to-day things, like your opinions on the news, talking about other people, your interests, that sort of thing, you're giving your partner both open and subtle cues as to the person that you are. So if you're in a long distance relationship, it's really important to check in with your partner throughout the day and talk about what you might think is the dumb stuff. Talk about how a giraffe would wear a tie. How would you beat the zombie apocalypse? Or why chocolate is the ultimate food group? This is not a waste of time, but an important part of bonding in all relationships, not just the long distance ones. Long-distance relationships can also be strong because they have such little time together that they try to make the most of it by talking about a lot of things. Increasing the self-disclosure needed to build intimacy in the long-term relationships. Studies show that individuals who moved from long-distance to close-proximity relationships were twice as likely to end their relationships than those who didn't. In a lot of cases, these relationships were actually more stable long distance than when the individuals were in the same geographic area. The more stable relationships were the ones who had contact more often when they were separated. So your idea of who your partner is at a distance 
may not actually be the complete reality once you're reunited. Those long distance relationships that fared best upon reunion were the ones where people had a realistic understanding that their partner at a distance may not be the complete picture of the partner in person. Infrequent face-to-face interaction can promote stability in long distance relationships, but this is only if the relationship remains long distance. Upon reunion, there's a larger challenge to keep that relationship stable. Now, please do not interpret this as me saying that long distance relationships don't work. They absolutely do for some, but if you're in one and you're planning on coming together at some point, you need to be realistic and know that you're going to have a little extra challenge. Dating relationships look different for everyone. And of course, there's similarities amongst all of them, which I already talked about. But when is a dating relationship really different? Everyone dates, the very young and the very old. In fact, we're seeing dating relationships in youth beginning as early as grade six. Is this bad? Is this good? Honestly, it's not really for me or for anyone else to say. It's just a sign of the times. Our first dating relationships are a way for us to practice the basic skills of being in a relationship. So just like we don't come out of the womb running, we don't enter the adult world simply knowing how to do an intimate relationship. Yet, many parents put restrictions for dating on their children. So I want to stress here, each parent's decision with respect to their kids is their own. But I want you to keep an open mind and consider what we know from years of studying relationships. We learn the rules of companionship, negotiation, relating, and consent as kids or as youth. This is where we practice these things. Young relationships are very much several practice runs for long-term adult relationships. So if kids aren't given the chance to try this out, how are they going to learn? Is it fair of us to expect them just to know how to do a healthy relationship as soon as they reach the arbitrarily determined appropriate age for dating? Just because relationships with young people are practice runs, it also doesn't mean that we as adults should take these relationships less seriously or give our kids the idea that their intimate relationships aren't important because they absolutely are. When I was growing up dating, I can't even begin to count the amount of times I had adults approach me and talk to me about how bad it was that I was taking a relationship so seriously so young, or that I would learn when I encountered a quote-unquote real relationship. Relationships for our youth are very real, just as real as ours. The love that our youth experience with one another is just as real and very real as ours. And the best way that we can support our youth as adults is to help them navigate this very complicated world of relationships. If we shut them down and we project that their relationships don't matter in these infancy stages, our youth will never come to us for help with their relationships. Also note when I say that young relationships are practice runs, I don't mean that young love isn't forever. People meet the loves of their life when they're kids all the time. That young love your kid has now very well could be the person they end up with. This happens all the time. 
One factor that young, uh, the youth are especially at risk for though is controlling behavior. So I'm gonna talk about this in the context of youth relationships, but please know that controlling behavior is incredibly common in adult relationships as well. And it's actually experienced cross-culturally. According to the World Health Organization, controlling behavior is defined as the conscious attempt to dominate, restrict, and or control an, an intimate partner without exerting physical or coercive violence. Controlling behavior, it's an indicator of unequal power in a relationship, and it's actually the most important signifier for future domestic violence in relationships. We see a lot of adults with this behavior um, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because the controlling behavior, it likely showed up in their young relationships, but it wasn't addressed at that time. So that behavior translated into their current adult relationships. This problem is so prevalent in teen relationships that one study found a 63% occurrence of controlling behavior in the youth they studied. And this figure or something similar to it has been replicated over other studies. We learn relationship styles by how it's modeled at home with adults. Um, and our first relationships are where we learn what behavior is appropriate and which isn't. The documented side effects of controlling behavior are very real and very serious, ranging from poor physical health to poor mental health to sexual violence to unwanted pregnancy. Younger girls dating older boys were more likely to experience controlling behaviors, but overall there was little difference in gender when seeing who does the overall controlling behaviors. Girls were more likely to engage in emotional and verbal controlling behaviors. Boys were also less likely to report controlling behaviors because they're unfortunately subjected to gender stereotyping and they're ridiculed for this. Youth who hold traditional gender stereotypes such as this are actually both more likely to be victims of abuse and perpetrators of abuse. Youth can be focused on an idealized version of love, leading them to view controlling behaviors as acts of affection, and this leaves them vulnerable. But on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, people in general, no age distinction here, believe that they have the ability to change their partner and adopt abusive behavior as a simple quirk with what they need to tolerate. This is not a healthy response either. So what kind of controlling behaviors are the most common that we should watch for? Um, one of these big controlling behaviors was when dating partners check up on each other. So this is where they check that their partner is where they are supposed to be when they said they were going to be there. The other things that were common was accusing them of seeing somebody else and blaming their partner for fights as being kind of the most common domination controlling behaviors. Uh, being given the silent treatment um, was the most often seen emotional and verbal controlling behavior. In one study, about 90% of youth overall said that they would seek help with these behaviors, which is a really great sign. And what this does is it highlights the importance of having trusting and non-judgmental relationships with our kids and having real teaching conversations about what unhealthy communication is, um, rather than punishing them for it and ending up in this situation. 
The use of unhealthy interactions begins very, very early on in our dating years, as young as grade six. This suggests some seriously inadequate healthy relationship education on the part of both parents and our schools. And honestly, we have to do better. We have to do better for our kids. So our little ones grow up into adulthood with the confidence to engage in a healthy and loving relationship, which is ultimately one of the things that we want for our kids. Moving on, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of stigma surrounding our older population and relationships. For some reason, there's a societal perception that's rooted in ageism that older people are not sexual. They don't want to date. They especially don't want to date after they lose someone and they should never be romantically involved again. Obviously, these are all stigma. With her population living longer, our older generation is breaking down these barriers. In fact, the proportion of middle-aged adults who are single has risen about 50% since the 1980s. So what this means is that there's more people over 65 who are single. Studies have found that the prevalence of dating declines with age, where most of the daters are divorced or separated and most non-daters are widowed, which makes sense to me. Higher amounts of daters age 65 plus held college degrees and were still working. Men were more likely to want to formalize their dating relationship with marriage, where women wanted companionship only. Women tended to date men the same age as them or older. Men tended to date same age or younger, which is a phenomenon we saw earlier, accounting for a greater percentage of older men who are dating. When we're considering the dating world, we need to make room for the fact that people are living longer. Marriages aren't lasting, so there's a much greater pool of people middle-aged and up who are dating. This brings a need for increased social support and increased opportunities to date for this population. It also stresses the importance of us not furthering ageist stereotypes. If grandma wants to go out on a date, the last thing she needs is to be looked at strangely or discouraged by her loved ones. For an older individual to enter the dating world, that takes so much courage, and that courage is to be commended, and that courage is to be supportive. Everyone deserves an opportunity to find a fulfilling, intimate relationship, regardless of age, regardless of sex, culture, or orientation. I believe that although you are privileged to find love when you do, having someone to love, having a companion that's right for you and right with you, you're entitled to this as a feeling, emotional, and erotic human being. For those of us that have been in a relationship for a while, it might be tempting to tune out much of the advice I've given you because we already did it. We achieved the unachievable. We met that ultimate milestone. We found love, so all of that dating stuff is silly, right? Wrong. Long-term studies of relationships have found that couples who continue to date each other, continue to court each other, fare better and have stronger bonds long-term than those that don't. Yes, new relationships have a certain feel to them. An excitement complete with butterflies in the stomach, a tendency toward random acts of love, and what some have described as a preoccupation with how amazing their loved one is. This has been fondly referred to as new relationship energy by some relationship therapists. 
New relationship energy is a natural part of our intimate bonding process, and it's needed to cement our attachment to our loved one. It does fade with time as the relationship progresses. This is normal. Once our relationships move into years, it takes work for us to achieve a similar level of energy. Some of us chase that new relationship energy endlessly, bouncing from person to person. Others simply give in and become resigned to the fact that their long-term relationship won't feel the same and they stop working at it. Neither of these approaches is correct. You'll never get that same intensity of new relationship energy, but this doesn't mean that you've failed in your relationship. If you work at it, you'll get a deeper, more intense feeling of passion for your partner, one that's able to withstand the test of time. For those listeners who've been in a relationship for a while and recognize that there's no longer the same energy as you had when you were dating, this is absolutely normal, but please don't give up. Take the initiative to actively court your partner again. Buy the flowers, cook the dinner, open the door for her, and please, please send those love letters. I'm a total sucker and I love Valentine's Day. I do agree that it's become commercialized, but as a therapist, the intent behind Valentine's Day makes a lot of sense to me. Some people need a day of the year to be reminded to intentionally court their long-term partners. I believe that this is the true intention and value in Valentine's Day. So I want to encourage you, please celebrate Valentine's Day with as much enthusiasm and as much love as you can muster. Your partner will thank you. If you don't take that intentional time to court your partner, the intensity of your emotional connection can fade. Please don't wait for a single day to show your partner you love them, though. Show them throughout the year. Show them every day. Show them every hour of every day. Never stop flirting. You may have forgotten how to flirt, or you might flirt differently, or you might think you're not too attractive flirting, but it's an essential component of maintaining erotic energy in your relationship. And erotic energy is an essential component to every romantic relationship. Do slow dance in the kitchen. Do kiss your partner randomly throughout the day. Do tickle them. Do touch them intimately. Even adults need to play and have a feeling of play. Play with your partner. Play games. Sing together. Wrestle each other. Whatever makes sense to you. If there is any message I want you to take from today's podcast, it's this. Never stop dating. Never stop flirting. And most importantly, never stop expressing your love. Never stop. Your partner may know that you love them, but they need to feel that you love them as well. Love is not just a word that we utter. Love is intentional. Love is an action. It's an affirmation. And love is a process that should never stop. I asked my listeners to give me a short recording of their favorite memories from when they were first dating. You'll hear a variety of voices, young, old, people in newer relationships, and people who've been married for years. I think you'll find threads of what I've talked about in this episode and the last one from all of these guys. I want to leave you today with their voices, their affirmations of love, and I want to invite you to just bask in the beauty of these precious memories. And I want you to feel the love that they have for their partners when they're talking and sharing their memories. 
Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you so much for being brave and coming on my brave journey in this brave space. I am so grateful for you and I want you to just take good care. Care. Early in our relationship, we went for a walk with my dogs and it was weird because they're my children and seeing how she interacted with them was absolutely beautiful because she was firm and loving and it was just the perfect moment of, yes, this human is who I want. So um, it was probably in uh, early November and there was a school dance being held at my high school and um, I planned to take Catherine there. However, whenever we arrived, we were very underwhelmed by the fact that there was no one there and um, no one else was dressed up to the same level that we were. Um, So after about 15 minutes, we went home and then when we got home, uh, only dad was home. He was up in his room. So it was just me and her downstairs. And I decided to um, put on some slow dancing music. And uh, I moved the coffee table out of the way. And it was just us that was um, dancing alone in the, uh, in the living room. It was very nice. It was very calming and sweet and I really enjoyed it um it's definitely one of those moments that I wish I could recreate the feeling but I probably won't be able to the first time is always the best time I guess that's how you should put it but um that that is my uh favorite memory of me and my girlfriend and um I'm sure many other people have had the same you know like really late dances in the kitchen or or um you know, those dancing on the dance floor together, all that stuff, so. I played on a co-ed soccer league for many, many years, and it's not uncommon for a lot of us to bring friends to our games. Uh, My goalkeeper had brought his friend Steve to the game. I didn't recognize him, I didn't notice him, I just was playing the game. Then in that same game, we had a team member tear her MCL. Um, And when it happened, she went down, she was crying. And out of nowhere, this stranger comes from the sidelines and offers to get ice. That's when I notice him and I'm like, oh, who's that? Like, that's so lovely of him to just go and get ice for a stranger. Uh, Proceed forward at the end of the game. We all go for drinks, and I am doing a little chit-chat with him on the side, and I quickly realize that his soul is so gentle, and he's just this, like, beacon of, like, all things good in the world. And then, because I'm very intuitive, I get this, and I can't explain it, but I get this, like, whisper of, and this feeling, like, jolt over my body of, this is that intersecting moment of where the universe has sent me my my person and I've never felt that feeling before but 
the words and the feeling I felt, I couldn't question. I just couldn't question Heather. So he arranges, uh, I named that two night uh, for the whole soccer team. And that's where really our love story began. Um, danced, I'll name that tune, like it was just odd, but we danced, um, and I just remember the first time we had, so that night we had, and feeling, it's like that moment of like overwhelming um, mindfulness where I felt like every inch of his body hug and touch my body it was this surreal moment of wow like I've never had a hug like this in my life this this is something special and so two weeks after that I had I was the MC for a wedding and I asked him to be my date uh, and fast forward that night we were caught making out by my father, if all people, in the coat room of where the venue was for the wedding, because the wedding was my uncle's wedding, and I was the MC, and we were making out, and here we are, almost 10 years later, three kids. My favorite memory of me and my husband is when he proposed to me. So that would be the night he took me out for a special dinner. And I kind of, he always took me out there to that restaurant for special occasions. So I kind of, uh, what you call it, uh, caught on to something was going to happen or something was going on. When I asked him what was what was going on, he denied everything. He said he just wanted to take me out for a special dinner, just the two of us. So I was like, okay. So I just sort of took it out of my head and didn't think of anything further of it. So I left it as that. And so we had our nice dinner. It was very nice. And then afterwards, we went to the movie rental place and we rented a movie. We went home and we started watching the movie and he was acting really strange and weird. He was pacing up and down and just acting all strange. And then all of a sudden, he went down on one knee and he just all of a sudden, he just proposed to me and asked me to marry him and just totally threw me off guard. And I, of course, being very surprised, I was in tears and I said yes and well here we are today 26 years later and in April it'll be celebrating our 27th year. Hi Delcy, my name is Dawn. I am 56 years old and I've been married to my husband for about 20 years. We met when I was 33 and he was 38. And the first summer we met, we um, we just took off for the weekend. We went to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, um, drove from Snow Lake to Prince Albert, 
um, just the two of us, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Um, we lived in northern Manitoba, and we didn't have cell phones at that time, so there was no social media, nobody to interrupt us. Um, it, there was nothing planned. It was just a very carefree weekend, um, able to enjoy each other's company, do whatever we wanted to do at whatever time we wanted to do, and I think of that that weekend often. Um, went for you know supper together and we went to a movie and we did some shopping and he bought me my first I think it was like a iced cappuccino from 7-eleven I'd never had one before and yeah it was great we enjoyed the the drive there and there was a thunderstorm and um, I can still remember looking back at the dark sky through the rearview rear mirror and just talking about our future and yeah it was great um thank you so much bye uh a little bit of background i'm from pei and she's from nova scotia so we met online anyway we spent an awful lot of time going back and forth across on the uh ferry back for PEI. So it was our one year anniversary from when we started dating. And I, I had been planning this for a long time. She hadn't seen me for about two weeks before our anniversary. Anyway, I wake her up and I hand her this box. I said, this is why I've been away. And she opens it up and it's the first clue in a scavenger hunt. So I have her in the pool at 8 o'clock in the morning. I had her up in the barn. I had her down in our campground where we go to. had her all over the place in this morning. And she got ferry tickets and a new dress and booking for a hotel. All this stuff was throughout the scavenger hunt. So we get onto the ferry to head to Nova Scotia for our anniversary. And we're going across. Anyway, we step outside, uh, I take her outside, and the other ferry, because the two of them meet in the middle, everybody's watching it because it is sailing, like, directly at us. They're usually about a mile apart. This thing is into, like, 600 feet, and it's crazy. And I didn't even know that they could do this at the time, but the ferry is able to sail perfectly sideways. So it just looked like it was going to run right into us. So we're all out on the deck trying to figure out what is going on. Anyway, uh, the ferry straightens out. So it runs perfectly parallel with us. And exposes a 60-foot banner that we had built. And it goes, Lisa, will you marry me? And Lisa's just sort of in shock. She's reading this. And then she turns around and sees me. I'm on one knee with the ring. And then she starts freaking out. So, uh, anyway, it's obviously, she said, yes, this is 10 years ago. Um, so, uh, she, oh, she had sort of self-appointed herself a promise ring. Anyway, she dropped the promise ring whenever she's going to put, take the other ring from me. And every person on the deck of that boat, you could have heard a pin drop. They just stopped because they thought it was the actual engagement ring. I'm like, no, guys, guys, I got it. It's right here. We're good. So uh, anyway, no, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Then they took us up onto the bridge and they gave her a bottle of wine and a dozen roses. And um, Yeah, that was my 
five minutes of of fame, I guess. Um, then she she called her mother and told her what happened, and then her mother freaked out. And anyway, uh, but um, yeah, it was a an excellent time.